Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. I love sharing my favorite products with y'all, and right now I want to tell you about my favorite cleaning product. We try to be very mindful about the products that we bring into our house, especially now that we have kids. We love Branch Basics because it's a non-toxic, fragrance-free, just generally human-safe product that you can use for all of your cleaning needs. Literally, we use it for everything in our house, plus we use it for hand wash and for laundry, which makes it super cost-effective. Go to branchbasics.com and you can use the code TaylorKulik to save 10% off of the starter kits. Hi everyone, welcome. I am so excited. I have Dr. Trill here with me today from Free to Feed. We're going to be chatting about food intolerances, nursing through food intolerances and allergies. Um, And I'm just so excited, Dr. Trill, for you to be here. We were talking a little bit um, before we started recording about how there is not very much information out there for parents of babies with food intolerances or allergies, but at the same time, it seems like there's so much information and it's all contradictory. So it's so hard to know what is good information um, and what to do and where to go and who to get help from. So Dr. Trill, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself and your business um, and kind of how you got started? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much, Taylor, for having me on today. It is an honor um, to get to speak with you. And so really the birth of Free to Feed was from the exact problem that you're talking about, the um, lack of information, yet the plethora of wrong information. So um, my name is Dr. Trill, as you mentioned, and I am a molecular biologist and the founder of Free to Feed. And I specialize in protein analysis. So when I went to school, I was actually studying ovarian cancer and how to manipulate proteins in ovarian cancer to help patients be re-susceptible to chemotherapy. So it was a pretty sweet job. And in my last year of grad school, I started my family, which was an interesting time to have a baby. And um, (laughs) our oldest daughter had awful colic and screamed all of the time. And so we took her in, you know, as as worried parents and said, okay, she always screams and she's inconsolable. Can you help us? What do we do? How do we, how do we, how do we help her? And we were told, yep, she has, uh, she has colic. There's nothing you can do. Go home. And we did. And then a few weeks later, we woke up to find her totally covered in eczema from head to toe with several bloody diapers, one right after another. And it was terrifying And we took her back in and said, okay, well, now we definitely broke her. Now can you help us? And in that moment, I was told, maybe consider removing cow's milk protein from your diet or go to this hypoallergenic formula. And that was it. And my mind was blown that one, that was my only answer. And two, that 
I could transfer proteins to my breast milk. That was brand new news to me. I, even as a protein expert, I did not know that that Mm -hmm. existed. Um, So I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, fine. I'll remove cow's milk protein from my, from my diet. That's fine. Um, I will miss cheese, but okay. And so I did that and my daughter spiraled quickly to the point where all that was coming out of her was blood. And um, we eventually were admitted to the hospital and they told me that after a 24 hour starvation diet, which was hard on everybody, um, that she had a severe allergy to something in my breast milk uh, from my diet, but that they couldn't test her to determine what it was. So my only option was a hypoallergenic formula. And um, the formula was made of corn and smelled like sweaty gym socks and cost 50 bucks a can. And while the first two things I could definitely get over, the last one, I actually couldn't afford it. So I, as a grad student, we didn't qualify for any assistance and I quite literally couldn't afford to feed my baby. Um, and you also don't have the opportunity to just go get another job when you're in grad school. So I started asking the question of like, can I make hypoallergenic breast milk then if you can make hypoallergenic formula? And the answer was a hesitant, yeah, you can, but um, we don't know what she's allergic to. So just cut this very long laundry list of foods from your diet. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. Put her on formula for two weeks and then try breastfeeding again. And I didn't question it. I um, took it at face value and said, okay. And I buckled down and I went on this crazy, crazy diet for two weeks and I got back to breastfeeding. Thank goodness she went back to nursing and I just put my head down and I did that for an entire year. And I got through grad school and I graduated and I didn't know any different and I didn't know any better. All that I knew is that I was miserable and that I felt unsupported and I lost a ton of weight. And there was so much stress around every single thing that I put in my mouth because I had this perception that if I accidentally messed up for an entire year, if I accidentally messed up, I would hurt my baby for two weeks. And that was incredibly stressful. And afterwards, so um, she weaned around a year and we moved on. Um, And when my second daughter was born, she had the same problem. And I was just like struck down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, there's no way, how will I do this again? Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, this time popped my head out of the sand, um, you know, really early postpartum and said, okay, where are the people? Where are the products? There's gotta be a community, somebody to help me. And what I found was a lot of people, I found lots and lots and lots of parents. Um, and then I started digging into the actual research. So I said, okay, well, what, what does the science say? This time I have, I'm out of grad school. I can kind of, I have my feet underneath me a little bit better. Let's, let's see what all the research says. And when I went digging into the research, I was dumbfounded by the research that was available to us and how much it did not match any of the information that was given. Because as parents were told a whole spectrum of things from, you know, proteins don't transfer from your diet to your breast milk at all, and nothing that you eat will impact your baby. So you have that side of the spectrum, all the way to when you consume something, it's going to be in your breast milk for weeks upon end. Mm -hmm. And like everything in between. When in actuality, all of the research that I found indicated that proteins in your diet peak in concentration and clear in much the same mechanism that... Um, medications and alcohol and flavonoids do, which makes sense. They're all molecules. They're all being, they're all go through the same pathway in the body, through the GI tract and the circulatory system to your breast. 
and they all clear in the same way. And so the more that I dug into the research, the more, honestly, the more pissed I became. Mm -hmm. um, like, I can't believe I spent a whole year of my life like in massive fear of everything that went into my mouth when like none of that was actually true. Um, and so in addition to the research that we did have that didn't support this concept of one, it doesn't happen at all, definitely showed that it happened. And it's been, sh we've shown that in the research for the last 50 plus years, but two, that when it did transfer, it cleared quickly um, within 24 hours often. And so when I was also digging into all of that data, I found that their research was also really sparse, which meant for me that um, there were gaps in the research. And what I mean by that is like, what happens when um, we do, we consume several servings of it? What happens when we don't pump overnight? What happens in all of these different nuanced situations that quite honestly, a researcher who is a man is not going to think of. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that problem isn't going to be solved. And that is a good portion of why the, not only is there so much misinformation, but also that there's a, a gap in the research because men don't lactate. And that's where the money goes as far as um, research and, you know, past grant funding and things of that accord. And I've <laughs> been battling, fighting that, the good fight for the last almost three years now, getting grant funding to close those gaps. So for wow. example, there's zero research looking at um, soy transference. It's believed that it should follow the same exact mechanism and all as other, all other proteins, it's not special, but because it is the second most likely thing to for a mom to have to cut, there should certainly be more research into it. Right. Um, and so that's what our grant funded research is looking at right now is specifically dosing for cow's milk protein and soy um, and microbiome impact and breast milk impact, um, all of the questions that like, as I navigated the space I had and that other moms that I've talked to have to really nail down, like, what are the answers to these questions? Um, and so that's part of what I'm doing today with Free to Feed is um, doing the science and the research behind all of this. But then really the goal, the um, goal and the entire <laughs> free to feed creation was to build a test strip that would allow moms to test their breast milk for the presence of allergens at home. Because when I really think about this problem and I really consider how do you turn the tide on this misinformation campaign? How do you really turn the tide on something that's been shared widely across so many different spaces? Um, and say like, no, that actually the research doesn't support what you're saying. And even the like things you're citing says the opposite of what you're saying, um, which is incredibly painful. Um, so in my mind, the best way to change that tide was to give the power to mom. So if we simply let mom test her own breast milk, then there isn't a, she doesn't have the question anymore. There isn't a question of like, oh, I, I accidentally had cheese on my sandwich and I didn't mean to, and I got, I took a bite of it. And now I'm, I'm stressed because I consume this cheese. Am I supposed to go throw up? I've literally had that moment in my life. Where I'm like, do I go throw up now? Like, what do, what do I do? Instead to just know I can test my breast milk at home. I can see, oh yes, I did end up with cow's milk protein in my breast milk. And I can test to know exactly when it's cleared and when I continue breastfeeding my baby. Um, and that is how I see, you know, research is slow. Um, 
publications are great and we're going to continue to do that we're going to continue to focus there but i think the power lies in giving the data to mom and so that's our goal we're creating a test strip to allow moms to test their breast milk for the presence of allergens at home we have a, a wait list right now for the launch and i'm actually in new york city right now at rockefeller university if i walk out the store there's like a whole whole lab next to me um and we are forging the path to empower women to continue breastfeeding and it's been a wild wild ride that's amazing thank you so much for sharing that with us that is incredible and as you were sharing about your um, experience with your first child it brought back so many memories of my experience with my first child because although her symptoms were not as severe, she had blood in her stools as well. And I spent a year cutting out dairy, eggs, and soy and feeling in, in fear of everything that was put into my mouth, tears, crying all the time. I mean, so stressful. And I love what you said about really the, the answer is to empower moms, to empower parents with the answers. And I think that is true of a lot of things related to parenting is we need to give back the power and the data and the information to parents instead of, you know, doctors are amazing. Doctors are important, but they don't always need to be the gatekeeper of all of the information, especially when they're not always the gatekeeper because they don't have the information. And there's a lot of confusion there. Um, so, and I love the test strip idea. I had no idea that you, that that was in the works and that's so amazing. And I think will help so many families. What, how do you even know if your child might have a food intolerance or an allergy? And what are the differences between intolerances and allergies? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I'll start with the symptoms and then I'll mm -hmm. hit the intolerance and allergy piece. Um, so on the symptom side, the, one of the things that's so incredibly difficult about food sensitivities for infants is that there's so many different kinds of symptoms that can present. Mm -hmm. um, and so often, you know, if we, we look at baby, um, the most telltale signs that we see early are colic, reflux, and rash. So those are the things that we see like out of the gate typically. And then often they will escalate and we'll start to see additional symptoms. Um, so rash turns into eczema, for example, and not always, but commonly. Um, you may have you know, strange stools turning into blood in stool. Um, blood in stool is a, a telltale sign for a um, food sensitivity problem. Then um, diarrhea, constipation, the other like GI impact. So if we, we really look at like top to bottom, um, top of baby, top of GI tract, we have um, continuous congestion and then um, muco mucus in the esophagus. So when baby is, uh, has lots of reflux and it's very mucusy, um, that can indicate a reaction in the esophagus all the way down to their tummy. Then you may see vomiting response. So all of those are upper GI issues and um, often will occur really quickly after ingestion. So it can happen either immediately or up to a few hours after ingestion when we're looking at upper GI issues and then lower GI issues, things like constipation, diarrhea, excessively mucusy stool and bloody stool that commonly we see around the six hour mark up to 48 hours, which is where some of the confusion lies too of like, I haven't eaten something for 48 hours, what's happening and it's lower GI impact can take longer. Mm -hmm. And then on the skin side, we can see rash, we can see eczema, we can see flushing. Um, 
we can even see hives in some instances. And when we have the lower GI impact, especially, the other thing that happens for many of these babies is that they then are not able to effectively absorb the nutrients from mom's breast milk. And so we see failure to thrive often. They will start, um, or even if we don't quite get to failure to thrive, they'll start falling down on the chart. And um, so it's super common then for parents to have a few of these symptoms, but not always all of the symptoms. And so it's, it's um, really common for parents to come to me and be like, well, my, my baby has really bad blood in stool, but they're still gaining weight. Yep, that's totally normal. So every baby's going to check different boxes and that's what can be confusing too, is like your baby may have um, no rush or your baby may be growing perfectly. Your baby may be a happy, healthy, except for they're bleeding profusely out of their butt. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they are vomiting every couple of hours. So every baby is going to check different boxes. Um, and the first thing to do then is to rule out the other possibilities for those symptoms. And the next thing to do is to not band-aid the problems because every single one of those symptoms, one has other things that it could be, other root causes that it could be that we should rule out, lactation issues, things like that, latch mechanical. Um, so we need to rule out those things for those particular issues. For rash, it might be environmental, for example, maybe we need to switch detergent, things like that. So we need to rule out the other possibilities, but then also not like mask the symptoms with, let's say if my baby has a rash, masking it with a cream after cream, after cream, after mm -hmm. cream. Um, instead saying, okay, well, I changed my detergent and that didn't fix it. And so now I'm going to look at internal because rash and eczema is often an external reaction and external immune response to a food. So now let's start looking at food, potential food culprits. Um, so that's kind of the, the symptomology. There's lots to unpack there and every baby will have a different package of those things. Mm -hmm. um, my, for example, my children, uh, my oldest had awful colic and then eventually we got to bloody stool and eczema. My second had um, vomiting. She ended up having F pies to oats. So we had like um, a reflux vomiting response and she was a comforter. So I had a crier and a comforter. And so with my crier, June, my oldest screamed all of the time. And with my comforter, I thought my nipples were going to fall off. She mm -hmm. just nursed all of the time. Um, and all of the above are hard. <laughs> um, yes. And all of the above are valid. And so and then to talk in, about the food allergy versus food intolerance. Um, what's so incredibly interesting that may be surprising for a lot of listeners is that a vast majority of babies have an allergy, wow. almost every single one of them. So when we talk about food allergies and food intolerances, which is often why I like to use the word sensitivity, because when we're at the doctors, we get told your baby has an intolerance. Um, but an intolerance scientifically actually means that your baby's not making the right enzyme to break down a food, which isn't actually the case for a vast majority of babies. It is very, very rare for your baby not to make the right enzymes to break down cow's milk protein, for example. There are instances in which it happens, and the instances are like premature babies who don't make the enzyme yet, but they will. They just need a little bit more time. Um, babies who have like severe gut trauma. And what I mean by that is like gut surgery um, where it may impact their enzyme. Or if baby is like born not to make that enzyme, 
they will not make it out of the hospital. Like you, you won't go home with your baby and then find out later, like, oh, my baby doesn't make this enzyme. You won't make it out of the hospital because mm-hmm. they won't be able to break anything down. So intolerances are incredibly rare. Allergies, however, is what a vast majority of babies actually have. And the confusion comes from the fact that there are two different kinds of allergies. So when we hear your baby has an allergy, we like giant big red flags go waving all over the place of like, Mm -hmm. you know, peanut anaphylactic shock, EpiPen, ah. Um, And that's one kind of allergy. But when we look at an allergic response, if I were to like show you a diagram, there would be like the food up top and then it would branch down to like eight different ways that we can have an allergic response to a food. And one of those eight ways is in what's called an IgE mediated response. And that is the giant red flags, EpiPen, anaphylactic shock, need to go to the hospital. That's one pathway out of many. And all of the rest of them are not that severe. All of the rest of them are blood and stool and eczema and rash and reflux and vomiting and all of the other symptoms that we just talked about. They use different pathways and it's still an allergy. Um, It's because it's still an immune response to a food that it is seeing the food and deciding that it is a bad thing. That that food is an intruder and it it means it's harm. So we are going to attack it um, in whatever pathway the immune system decides. And if it uses antibodies called IgE, then that is commonly the hives and anaphylactic shock. And the good news for IgE is that that's how we test for allergies, right? Like that's how a typical anaphylactic shock style allergy is tested is we look for IgE antibodies. And so the good news on a, you know, a very severe allergic response using that pathway is that we can test for it. Yay, wonderful. Mm-hmm. We know what baby's allergic to. We do a skin prick or a blood test and it comes back positive and we have an answer to our question. Fantastic. So the good news is we can test for it. The bad news is it's likely often lifelong and it is often life-threatening. The rest of the pathways, one, we can't test for because they don't use IgE antibodies to elicit that response. They use different cells and different mechanisms to cause that response to happen in baby. And then Two, the good news is that baby will likely outgrow it. And that's where that misconception comes from is that like all those other types of allergies are often outgrown, almost always outgrown, hallelujah. But because they're outgrown, then we have this misconception that like they must be an intolerance then that baby's outgrown because we don't outgrow allergies. But that's not actually correct. We do outgrow a vast majority of allergies. It's just the one pathway and one type of allergy that we don't. And though, so all of those other ones are called non-IgE mediated, which is so scientific of us to just lump them all together and just call them not this thing. Um, so not life-threatening reaction is what the rest of them are basically called. Um, and they can't be tested for except for trial and error, which is a giant part of the problem. And they are often outgrown. So that's kind of the differences on the allergies versus intolerance your baby likely has an allergy and that is perfectly fine because they're just as likely to outgrow it and we can still navigate it in all of the right spaces. And when I talk to uh, medical professionals about this particular like misconception, um, there's a few that like just don't understand, right? There's a few that like that's just not part of their curriculum and they don't know. And you know, doctors don't know what they don't know. And I get that. And there's others that I've talked to that have said legitimately, I tell parents that their baby has an intolerance because I don't want to worry them. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't have anything nice to say about that. Um, yeah. I don't I don't subscribe to the thought process that we should um, save parents from themselves or that, that we need to be coddled in some way, shape mm-hmm. or form. Um, instead that we should just give them the actual facts. Your baby has an allergy. They're going to likely outgrow it. And this is how we can work through it together. As opposed to just saying like, yeah, your baby has an intolerance. They'll outgrow it. Go home. It's fine. Right? Like we're, we're placating at that point. And quite honestly, we're lying by omission. So mm-hmm. those are um, the very long way to answer your questions. I totally, I totally agree with what you just said too, about just give parents the information that in, in and of itself is so empowering. And when you explain it, like you did, it doesn't seem as scary when you actually have the facts. Um, that's so interesting. I'm learning so much from you. I totally thought that it, it was intolerances versus allergies, kind of the way that you described it, um, in how most people think of it. So my question is, do you know, why do babies who have the, the not as serious allergies, why do they outgrow it and what might be causing it? Yeah. So, um, non-IG mediated allergies and IG mediated allergies as well are, are largely genetic. So, um, a large portion of it is, um, genetic that is either turned on or not turned on. And so we have a genetic propensity for this particular particular response in the immune system. And the reason why we outgrow it as we get older is the immune system finishes developing. So the immune system, when, when baby is still in the womb, they're largely um, relying on your immune system. So baby is born and then the immune system continues to develop. And in that first year of life is when we're most likely to see a food allergy start up right? We're most likely to see a food allergy come to fruition. It may be in day one. It may be in month six. That's a a common question that I get is like, my baby was fine until like she was six months old. What the heck happened? Um, So as the immune system is developing, we may see that come to fruition and, or we see the immune system typically after it's come to fruition and like, yep, we're, we are reacting to that specific non-human protein. The immune system has decided that that protein looks like an intruder. That protein looks like something that's bad. As the immune system finishes developing, it is able to differentiate better. To to say, I now know better the difference between what is a food and what is a parasite or a bacteria or a virus. And I can tell better between those two things. And so as the immune system continues developing, we can effectively increase the likelihood that baby will outgrow that allergy by removing the trigger during that time of development so that we don't see like increased reactivity, right? Which we commonly will see. Um, And so that we can increase the likelihood that, that the immune system will kind of get over itself, if you will, um, and outgrow that particular response to that structure of a protein. Okay. Can you talk about, and I I think there was actually one question from the community about this, um, but this is something I've heard as well, gut health related to either mom's gut health or baby's gut health, and that being the cause of an allergy um, and healing the gut. Can you kind of talk on that and what you know about that? Yeah, absolutely. So what's interesting about gut health is um, when we look at food allergies, we have to understand that food allergies are two very different things are happening in two very different bodies. And so on baby's side of the journey, if we have a food allergy, we have a baby who is reacting to a non-human protein. 
And it, the good news, if there can be good news in the midst of that, is that it will always be to specific ones. And it may be to one, and it may be to several, but it will always be to specific non-human proteins. So that's what's happening on baby's side of the journey. And that may be reactivity in their GI tract, that may be reactivity on their skin, that may be reactivity in other places of the body. On the other side of the journey is mom, right? So the interesting side in all of this is that um, what the other body is feeding, the first one that I just talked about. And so, which fantastic, that's amazing and wonderful and you are a goddess. Um, and so on mom's side of the journey, what's interesting to consider is that some parents don't find out that their baby has a food allergy until they start solids, right? So like mom will eat cheese every day, all day. And you and I can be like, darn you. And <laughs> the first time they give cheese to baby, bam, they see a reaction. And so it's interesting to consider why those two families have two very different introductions into the food allergy community. For one, like you and I, we're seeing that red flag early when we're feeding our baby through our breast milk. And for other families, they don't find out until they get to the solids point. So what we see in the research is that the difference between those families is that mom's able to transfer the protein in the specific form that baby's reactive to. And so the stars have to align. We have to have a mom that transfers the protein in the form that baby reacts to. And what's important to understand there is that we could have a mom that has really amazing gut health. Like she's got some guts of steel and she's barely transferring proteins. She transfers proteins just like the other parents who don't see a reaction until baby gets older. So she's barely transferring anything. And we have a baby who has crazy high sensitivity who's allergic to hypoallergenic formulas. And it doesn't matter the magical, wonderful things that mom does to try to improve her gut health, baby's still going to react because the sensitivity is just that high. Mm -hmm. And then we have other situations where like baby sensitivity is very, very low, right? Like we have a really low sensitivity. Baby has to have like straight up cow's milk in their mouth in order to have a reaction to cow's milk protein. But mom's transference is massive. So mom is basically transferring cow's milk protein in like nearly a whole form um, to her breast milk. And then every single option in between where the stars have to align, where baby sensitivity has to meet mommy's transference, which you think that like wouldn't happen very often, but like the current reporting of um, this particular situation is 25% right now in the United States, which is crazy. Blows my mind, but that's another conversation. 25% of babies tend to have allergies. Is that, is that the number? 25% of um, maternal reporting of food allergic responses. Okay. Yep. For wow. Breast that's higher than I thought because yeah, so we're always told, well, I always hear it's really rare. You know, it's really overdiagnosed food intolerances, allergies, really overdiagnosed, but that's not what the data actually tells us. Right. Yep. So, um, and that's, that's interesting because when we look at like confirmed cases, yeah, that's like 2.5%, but that's because those are IgE mediated that could be tested for, which is mm -hmm. stupendous, wonderful. And that is even increasing. 2.5 is still a very large percentage for talking about anaphylactic shock. Um, but the other side of it is if we actually ask mom, if we actually talk to parents about reactivity through their breast milk, in the year 2000, it was about 10% of parents reported through breast milk, I see responses. These are the foods that they respond to. These are the symptoms that I see. Like very, very deep diving into that research. Um, and in the year 2000, 25% of wow. breastfeeding moms state that they have that issue. Um, and so are we like over-diagnosing it or are we just under-caring? Mm -hmm. 
there's probably a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, so then from there, uh, so, so then what mom can do, right? So as I'm working with parents one-on-one, um, we talk, we do talk briefly about like, these are the things to be cognizant of in your health. And we can make mom's gastrointestinal permeability, which is the fancy word for we're transferring those proteins to your circulatory system and therefore your breast. Um, we can make small impacts on mom's gastrointestinal permeability, but that is also largely genetic. And so for some moms, like we can, you know, do all of the essential oils and the probiotics and the, you know, the meditation and improve mom's gut health as much as we possibly can. But if she's genetically predisposed to intestinal permeability, there's nothing that we're magically going to do to make her just stop transferring proteins. And I think that that's important to tell parents because, you know, instead by, by having this mindset of like, it's mom's gut health and it's her fault then, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's your fault because you have crappy gut health, pun intended, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's all you. It turns out it's actually not all you. And certainly, mm-hmm. you know, because one, it's largely genetic. No, we're not just going to stop transferring proteins. Although that would be wonderful. Maybe that's what I should be working on. I work my way out of my first job. Um, so we're not going to just stop transferring proteins, but there are things we can do to impact it. And the reason, some of the examples of moms that are never going to stop transferring proteins, if they have celiac, if they have ulcerative colitis, if they have irritable bowel, if they have Crohn's or any number of other autoimmune or gastrointestinal disorders, um, to look at that mom and say, like, this is your fault is kind of a bunch of BS. Um, So, and even the moms who haven't been diagnosed with those things or don't seem to have gut problems, it's largely genetic again. So the three things that I do talk to mom about to say like in the midst of this journey, the number one thing that is going to be incredibly impactful is figuring out what baby's reacting to because that's still a problem all by itself. That is baby's immune system doing baby's immune system things and that has nothing to do with mommy. We, if we're gonna give baby, if we took that baby who had cow's milk protein allergy through mom's breast milk and gave them a cow's milk protein formula, they're still gonna react, right? That's baby's own shenanigans. So the three things that I do talk to moms about um, is one, making sure that they're not consuming any foods that elicit them a response. So, um, and any kind of food that elicits any kind of response for mommy will impact her gastrointestinal permeability. That could be um, tomatoes give me diarrhea, cucumbers make my mouth itch, soy makes me break out. Any response at all, which is super funny to have to say to mommies, but we will definitely do things for our children that we will not do for ourselves. So that's the first thing that I always talk to mom about. Like you need to cut out foods that cause you problems. The next thing is to make sure that she's consuming at least 100 ounces of water every day. Because anytime we're dehydrated, we stagnate proteins in our system and increase the likelihood they will transfer. And if we work out a lot, we need to increase that amount of hydration. And then the third thing is super funny to say because it will sound absolutely ridiculous um, is if there's anything mommy can do to reduce her stress levels. Because spikes in cortisol levels is what is the biggest impactor for gastrointestinal permeability. When we spike our cortisol levels, we break the the junctions between our cells and our gastrointestinal system. But you know what is going to really improve mom's stress? Not having a baby who's bleeding out of their butt anymore. So by instead of saying like, you have to fix yourself, we say like, let's really focus on, on baby. You know, let's focus on making baby better. When we get to happy, healthy baby, that's going to alleviate massive amounts of stress for mommy. And then we can spiral out of this because we essentially spiral into it as we're getting like 
more stressed and more gastrointestinal permeability because of more stress and that causes more reactions and we're just spiraling. Um, so if we can start alleviating symptoms and bring mom back out of the fog, um, that will be massive impact for her gastrointestinal permeability. Yeah, for sure. That's such great information. Where do you suggest moms start when they believe their baby has, is having symptoms of an allergy um, and they need to eliminate some foods? How do they know where to start? Yeah. So um, there's many different strategies that we can take to um, navigate an elimination diet. And there's a lot of different things to take into account on like deciding which one we're going to do. So for some moms, they kind of take the onesie twosie approach where we say like, okay, here's my list of like most likely things. And it typically starts with cow's milk protein, followed up by soy, followed up with egg and wheat. And we kind of trickle down the list. Um, And for those parents who have very mild symptoms, that might be a great strategy. Um, for parents who have more severe symptoms or have already been partway down this path and they're like, I've already removed this and this, and it's been two months and my baby's still bleeding. I can't anymore. Um, they're kind of at their wits end often. Then I will work with them on a short, more broad elimination diet where we'll say, okay, we're going to take a backwards approach to this, or maybe it should be like the frontwards approach, but it's not typically used where Mm -hmm. we're going to say, okay, we're, we're going to eliminate the top infant food allergies, which don't match the top eight. Um, So we're going to eliminate the top 12 infant food allergic responses that's been published in research. And so I don't know why that's not talked about more, but I'm I'm pushing that, pushing that as much as I can. I've never even heard about that, that they're different. It's different than the top eight. It is different from the top eight. Do you have a list of that somewhere? I do. It's um, all over the website and all over my Instagram, which Um, I'll link in the description. Perfect. Perfect. So what's interesting is like the top eight is the top adult IgE mediated food allergies. So anaphylactic shock to food allergies. Um, And we are not dealing with adult IgE mediated food allergies. We are dealing with infant non-IgE mediated food allergies. So those aren't one for one. Um, The most common things that cause adults um, anaphylactic shock isn't the most often things that cause infants blood in their stool. And so the differences there are that fish and shellfish aren't on the infant list um, because they are less likely to elicit a response. And all of this to say, any food can elicit anybody a response. This is all based on probability. Um, so top items. So fish and shellfish isn't part of the infant list because those are common IgE-mediated allergic responses that happen in adolescence and adulthood later on in life. And instead, there are some additional cereals and grains and some additional meats that are part of the Mm. infant list instead. Um, And so things like corn and oats and chicken and rice, which is really funny when a mommy gets to me and she's like, all you've been eating is chicken and rice. And I'm like, ah. Mm about that. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about that. Um, one, I'm sorry that that's your diet right now. And two, let's adjust. Um, Mm -hmm. so all of that to say, um, that one strategy is to take a one at a time approach. If symptoms are really mild and we have that kind of time, um, often I don't subscribe to waiting any longer than five days for a protocol. So when you say like, I'm going to do this thing, you should see some sort of impact by day five. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, all of the like pediatric literature says you should see some kind of impact in 72 hours. So Mm -hmm. why we're told by medical professionals to just like cut something for weeks on end just drives me batty. But yeah, um, I was told six to eight weeks. 
which just three like, years ago. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. and I Crazy. was told two weeks, um, six years ago, right? So mm-hmm. just like, where is this information yeah. coming from? And I have some theories, but well, that's that's another another thought. Um, so with that, then. Like the reason why five days is because of how we understand that protein transfers to your breast milk and how babies react. So if we know that protein is going to spike in concentration a few hours after ingestion is steadily decreased from there, typically gone within 24 hours, we give a day for breast milk clearance. Then we give um, baby reactivity time, right? So some babies will react pretty quickly within a couple of hours of ingestion of that protein in your breast milk in that moment. So for some, it's really fast, right? For some, it's like I ate chicken at lunch and I breast my baby at one and at two o'clock they had a reaction if it's upper GI, especially, or a rash. So, so for some, it's super fast. Um, on, when we're talking about the lower end of the baby though, that often takes six to 48 hours, depending on the reaction and reactivity. So we give up to the 48 hours for that to happen if we have some hanger honors and then two days for us to see an improvement. And that's why I typically do five days. So at the end of five days, we may not have a brand new baby and we likely will not have a brand new baby, but we should see some kind of improvement. There should be trajectory in the right direction by the end of five days. And if you don't, or God forbid it gets worse, which is the most egregious thing in the world when you hear like, oh, well, it gets worse before it gets better. Within 48 hours, sure. Uh, Beyond that, like, I have no words. So Mm -hmm. no, your baby should not just get worse and then magically get better like weeks into your elimination diet. That's Mm -hmm. egregious. Um, And what what that does long-term, right, is by telling moms like you that it takes six to eight weeks to get out of your breast milk is that means that you spend two whole flipping months chasing your tail, Mm -hmm. dealing with a baby who's still reacting and you're just waiting. Mm -hmm. And then you think you have, you have a little slip up and then you're like, oh my gosh, I have to wait another six to eight weeks to see improvements. all over. Yeah. All over. Mm -hmm. And I, I meet so many mommies in that situation where they're like, yeah, I was told, I was told eight weeks. Um, and so, and, and then this one time there was this butter in this thing Mm -hmm. and I was like four weeks in. So they meet me and they're three weeks into an elimination diet of just cow's milk protein. Cause they just get told to keep kicking the can down the road and everybody's miserable and baby's miserable, mom's miserable. And turns out the entire time baby was allergic to eggs. Like, Mm -hmm. So, so devastating. And, and often then the breastfeeding journey is the, the thing that gets, yeah. Different, right. Because, yeah. And, and with, with all, you know, absolutely, of course it would, right. Like, mm-hmm. like I can't imagine going through three months of waiting and then being at the end of it and being like, I lost all of my newborn year days, right. Like I lost mm-hmm. the last three months of my newborn. I don't have it in me to do this again. Right. Um, and I get that. And I, and yeah. I support parents through that too, to say like, okay, I hear you and I understand and I love you and you're amazing and you're a warrior and let's talk about formula and let's talk about mm-hmm. your options if that's where you're at. And that's, that's the other really important part is that I am, um, I'm mommy first. So while, you know, all of my platforms are, you know, empowering women to continue breastfeeding, I am mommy first. And so if the best option for mom and her mental health and her uh, nutritional health is to switch, like, let's do it. And let's mm-hmm. talk through it and let's, let's get you to a safe formula. Um, and, and that's important too. So it feels like there's either, or there's either like the places you can go that are like, don't talk about formula. It's a bad word. Don't say the F word. You'll get kicked out of this group. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other places your, your medical professional often that's like, 
this is your only option. I can't believe right. you're still breastfeeding. You're hurting your baby. How dare you do mm-hmm. this? And, right. I, and, and not a whole lot in the middle to say like, hey, yeah. how about we like focus on you and what you need and what you want and what's better mm-hmm. for, for you, your goals and your health. And, um, you know, God forbid we tell parents that they're doing a great job and support right. them in their decisions. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really crazy place to be. Um, and then the very last type of strategy. So that, that middle ground strategy of like having a really broad, uh, elimination diet to get to happy, healthy baby fast, because we've either been on this crazy journey for too long, or we have really bad symptoms. Like, like my own situation, like we're in the hospital. Um, so we'll do a more broad elimination. And then when we get to happy, healthy baby, we do a reintroduction strategy because I don't subscribe to the idea that mom should be on the elimination diet uh, blindly, right? That we should just cut something for the sake of cutting it, that instead we should trial it back to see, does this actually elicit a response in baby and do so in a, a way that's safe for baby where we're gonna see the minimum response and know like, okay, this, this is actually my allergy. My baby's allergic to oats, fantastic. Now I can eat all the other food, which is what happened with my second daughter. Instead of just being on a crazy elimination diet for an entire year and being in fear, I did a reintroduction strategy and figured out, oh, okay, here we go. I can eat all the cheese in the world, hallelujah. My baby's allergic to oatmeal. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now I know, and I'm going to not start her on oats for her first food. And um, <clears throat> I can very specifically cut that food for six months to increase the likelihood she'll outgrow it um, and live my life again. And so that's mm-hmm. commonly what I walk moms through is like, here's our reintroduction strategy, or here's our elimination strategy. Here's our reintroduction strategy. And this is what we're going to do with the information we get, the data that you have gotten from this information. And the last ditch effort that you'll often hear about is um, a total elimination diet. And a total elimination diet is also also called a TED in this community is where mommy goes down to a handful of foods. And we're talking like five foods on repeat. Um, I don't like total elimination diets, but sometimes they are necessary. There are certain instances where we have babies that react to lots of different items. Um, Often those babies have FPIs, um, which Mm -hmm. is a certain kind of non-IgE mediated allergy. And so in that case, you know, I very specifically work mom through like, this is our short, as short as possible total elimination we're going to do. And this is how we're going to very quickly add foods back to your diet that will likely be a pass for you specifically for your specific situation. And we build mommy's diet back up as quickly as we can. That's such good information. Um, so quickly, we only have a few minutes left. I know your time is very valuable, um, but I think you mentioned when, you know, there's always, there always needs to be a reintroduction plan. Um, and I think you said reintroducing slowly within six months. Is that what you typically recommend? So it depends on the situation. So if mm-hmm. we have confirmed, so let's say like you removed cow's milk protein and baby got better, like baby's all better. And mm-hmm. that's the only um, sensitivity that we have there. Hallelujah that's fantastic. Then the recommendation is to strictly avoid that food for six months. And then after the six months mark, have a reintroduction plan for like, how are we going to see if baby is outgrown that food um, reaction or, or not. And so there, we can put together a specific plan to say like, this is how you do that. Uh, Because often moms were just like told like, oh yeah, just give your baby some yogurt, see what happens. And that's incredibly stressful, especially if you have a baby who has pretty egregious reactions. Be like, uh, can I do this in like the parking lot of the hospital? Right. Like, um, that's insane. 
Um, so that's one that's one situation. The other situation, though, that is important for reintroduction is if mom does a more broad elimination and we don't know what actually did it, right? So if we remove several things, let's say out of the gate, you remove cow's milk protein, soy, and egg, and your baby got better, but we don't actually know which of those things got baby better. Was it all three? Was it one? Was it two of them? So a reintroduction strategy, as soon as baby gets to happy, healthy, as soon as we hit baseline, we say, okay, what's the, the best way to bring each of these foods back to figure out which one is actually eliciting response so that one, you can open your diet up. And so it can be sustainable long-term because if we don't need to cut soy, which is in flippity flop and everything out of mm -hmm. your diet, then let's not. And then two, then you actually know what baby's reactive to. So when you get to solids, you know you're going to avoid something with soy in it or not. Um, or even maybe have things with soy like not in your house. It, it changes the dynamic when you actually know what baby's reactive to, right? Um, especially if you have like other kids or daycare, you may tell your daycare, no, I know my baby's allergic to cow's milk protein and I want you to not have cheese in the room, right? And so mm -hmm. it changes the game as opposed to like, my baby might be reactive to some of these things and I've removed 12 things now. So, yeah. you know, if you could just not have these 12 things and you look, they look at you like you're not so. Um, so for moms who do a broad elimination out of the gate, I recommend a reintroduction strategy very quickly to open her diet back up. Okay. Thank you. That's so, so helpful. Okay. Quickly, Dr. Chell, thank you so much for talking with us. I learned so much. I know listeners are going to learn so much. Can you just tell us where to find you and you do support families, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about that as well? Absolutely. And so again, thank you, Taylor, for having me. Um, it is an honor. And so um, best place to find me is free to feed.com. And we do offer one-on-one -on -one parent consults. So you can meet with myself or we're right in the middle of hiring on a registered nurse to help me with the consults because we're expanding and um, it's more than I can keep up with now, which is a, a wonderful, awful problem to have mm -hmm. um, that we have so many parents that need this kind of support. Um, and essentially in the one-on-ones, we do a deep dive into your particular situation, um, your elimination strategy, your introduction strategy, and even into like solids. If you have a food allergic baby and we need to, you know, talk through that and what's best for your particular situation. And then all, definitely on all of the platforms, um, I, we're most often active on Instagram, um, but active on all of the platforms and happy to help. We offer um, content and courses for professionals. So um, parents and lactation professionals can take our masterclass that's available on the website um, that deep dives into all of this. It's a three-day full course to learn all about food allergies and um, elimination and reintroduction and um, support. And so definitely all of those um, resources are available. And here before too long, we will be launching the Freedom Strips, which is the test strip for allergens and breast milk. Um, and so certainly there's a, a wait list on the website to get the first, get your hands on the first launch for the test strips, which is exciting um, and craziness. That's so exciting. Well, thank you again, Dr. Trill. The work that you're doing is so, so important. And I'm so grateful um, that you took the time to come on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. 
I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor Kulik. I hope you'll join me next time.